Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're talking about being a head writer on an animated project, developing stories around visuals, and writing for international animation shows with a very special guest. Yeah, with James Hamilton, who has written for The Amazing World of Gumball, was a part of the UK sketch comedy group Casual Violence, and is currently the head writer for an unannounced animated show for Netflix. Welcome, James. Hi, thank you. It's really nice to be here. So first up, where are you from and how did you end up in the entertainment industry and writing? So I'm from London and uh, how did I end? It's a long convoluted road, I think, to (laughs) sort of ending up in the entertainment industry. I was very much like a theatre kid when I was, I think, in my late teens. And I I wanted to be a writer since I was very little, but it was when I was around 17, 18, I wanted to make theatre in particular. And then I got to university and realised that it was possible to just put stuff on. Like, it's not something I even realised you could do. Mm -hmm. I was reading a lot of plays and going, oh, I'd like to be a playwright. And then realised that actually, once you're there, there's rehearsal rooms and willing actors who will work (laughs) for free. (laughs) And and you could just write stuff and put it on the theatre and people would come watch. So I started doing that and all the stuff I was doing was quite comedic I tried unsuccessfully to write comedy plays for a while and then transitioned to sketch comedy which I thought was easier (laughs) and that's sort of how I got started I formed a sketch group while I was there and we started doing like regular shows. I think it was four shows in the first six months. We were very prolific. They were not good, but (laughs) but we did a lot of them. We We made up for it in quantity. So we formed this group. We started doing the Edinburgh Fringe after about a year. So we started this sort of annual pilgrimage of taking shows up to Edinburgh and we kind of built our name and reputation, I suppose, reputation, I guess, for like weird, quite grotesque, dark, narrative-driven sketch comedy. And it was through that that I got an agent. And then my first TV writing job happened to be writing for The Amazing World of Gumball because that was based in London. It's one of the few sort of big animated shows that was based there. I think certainly the only Cartoon Network show that was being made in London and just happened to get very lucky. I think they were specifically hiring comedy writers who'd come off the the Edinburgh Fringe. I think their, their ideology was you you know, it's better to get comedy writers in and get them to write for kids than it is to get kids writers and try and make them funny. So so that's, uh, so that's how I got my first job. Did you have any early inspirations, whether in TV and film that push you in that creative direction? Most of the influences I'd say were things that I would go and see in Edinburgh when I was in my early twenties and seeing acts. I mean, I could reel off a list of names that you'd you'd never have heard of, but (laughs) the obvious, the obvious first one for me that maybe you guys would know of is going to see the boy with tape on his face when he was just doing like the fringe, you know, he was the guy who was right. an American yeah. Idol. Yep. He was mind blowing. And I remember going to see acts like him and every time I'd go see something like that, it just completely changed my conception of what comedy could be and what you can do with live performance and with comedy and the different ways you could make people laugh. Like watching, I, I bring him up because he's the one that's probably the most famous now, mm. but watching acts like him, it's like watching a magic trick. It's like finding a different way of making somebody laugh that you haven't seen before. And there were lots of different acts that kind of sketch and character things doing like really weird niche, interesting things that every time I'd come away going, oh, you can do comedy like that. Amazing. And then I'd try and incorporate it. I don't know if you've heard of them, but the Pajama Men as well were a comedy double act that I saw on, I think, 2010 for the first time. And I think it influenced like an entire generation of sketch comedians mm. in London specifically. Like my act and, and every act that I knew 
clearly took something from the pajama men and i think you could sort of see it in there and how do you feel those inspirations translated to your work in television and your own writing specifically outside of just the live sketch comedy aspect yeah thankfully they've translated okay and i think it's because i've fallen into doing cartoons specifically that that's worked (laughs) quite well because the stuff that i was doing with my sketch group was quite character driven quite grotesque quite cartoony and sort of fit in that liminal weird space between kind of having a little bit of a childlike fairy tale-ish quality to it, but then also being quite dark and weird. And I guess sort of the Roald Dali, Lemony Snicket type thing was the closest parallel, but would always be a little bit more like violent and weird and strange. (laughs) When I had my group and I first got my agent, I was trying to pitch to live action people and it just wasn't right for what they were doing. I mean, British comedy used to do quite a lot of like weird, grotesque stuff like the Mighty Boosh and League of Gentlemen and things like that, but they don't really do it anymore. And I remember trying to pitch these things to like completely befuddled executives <laughs> like trying to make sense of what I was pitching them and it was always you know I have these weird ideas that I've got this thing that I've been developing for animation an idea of mine that's about this kind of really grotesque villainous family and these conjoined twin assassins that are coming after them <laughs> like all the end one of the assassins wants to be a baker instead of a hitman so they fall out like it's all kind of weird stuff like that and then I'd have these execs look at me There's an old Bill Hicks joke where I think he talks about like a dog being shown a card trick. And that's what it felt like. They just didn't really get what I was talking about at all. And then getting into animation, those ideas suit it. Like I was writing for Gumble was a real eye opener. I was a little nervous about writing for kids because all my stuff was quite adult. I thought maybe I can't write for children, but actually it's really easy to write for children because you just need to be writing the same sorts of jokes as comedy. You just need to be writing good jokes and can't rely on swearing or rudeness. And it suited me, I think, because the kind of characters I was coming up with and the kind of humor I was coming up with was peculiar and a bit weird and very visual and grotesque. And that suits cartoons pretty well. And what do you think it was that sort of made that difference and put you over the edge in terms of being staffed onto Amazing World of Gumball? Obviously, I'm sure there were a million writers out there who would have loved the opportunity. So what was it about your writing and, and what you were doing you think that they reacted to or responded to positively? To begin with, of course, they were just sort of hoovering up people who'd come from the Edinburgh circuit who obviously people's agents are recommending. And the way I got onto Gumball specifically was I got put forward for it. I had to do a trial for them. And then after that, I was ongoing for them. And staff isn't quite right for that show because it was actually freelance. Everybody was kind of coming in on an ad hoc basis when asked for. So it always felt like a very tenuous job, you know, especially for newer writers, because sometimes they try writers out and they just weren't a good fit for the show. So maybe they'd come in for about four days, work on a couple of episodes, and then sort of that would be it. I worked on Gumball, thankfully, for about two years. And I think the thing people responded to on Gumball specifically for me is that even though obviously, despite it's a, a visual medium, I'm quite good at like weird verbal jokes that feel very convoluted and sort of fold in on each other. The kind of thing that Bojack Horseman does quite a lot, actually. There's mm-hmm. that, there's this really stupid joke. There's one I always think of where I think it's in the second season when Mr. Peanut Butter's got his game show and Todd and the mouse character are like fighting over this pen and it gets to the end and it's the flash forward to the, the like the grandpa thing and it turns out it's the story of how he got the pen and like it's just one of those jokes that keeps folding in and rug pulling every time and I love things like that so it's partly that also I really enjoyed writing songs for Gumball it's a bit of a weird I'm not a musical person at all but I really enjoyed just songwriting and like just playing with words in that way and quite a lot of the songs that were on during my tenure as Gumball Mm -hmm. were things that I at least co-wrote so 
I guess that then the creator of Gumball seemed to like that. So. Yeah. <laughs> On that topic, uh, what was the writing process for Gumball? Did you have like a writer's room? Was it uh, more like a freelance model? It was freelance, but we sort of had a, it was sort of a hybrid thing. And it was a little convoluted as a system, to be honest. It worked really well in some ways, though. The way they operated is they had, it sounds quite similar to begin with. You have like structure, draft one, draft two. But the way they did all those things was different from how I've seen it done anywhere else. Firstly, the structure would be usually Ben, the show creator, and a couple of other writers, and they'd just come up with the idea for an episode. It'd be pretty much what you'd expect, about a one-page outline, act one, act two, act three. They'd take about a day, half a day, to put something together for that. Then they hand that to the Draft One team. I just did uh, air quotes, which you can't see, but in air quotes, Draft One, because what the Draft One team did was basically the story editor, which again, isn't the same as a story editor as I've seen anywhere else in animation, but they've had a story editor and two writers, usually entry level. They would just take that structure and write 10 pages of jokes. Like they'd basically break it apart sentence by sentence and they'd just pitch loads of different alts for jokes for those things, like lots of different Lego bricks, essentially. And they'd take two days doing that. They wouldn't try and write the episode. It wouldn't be like writing it into a script format. It was in a Google Doc, 10 pages of jokes. That then goes to the draft two team, which is again, usually Ben again, sometimes a director Mick, and then two other writers. And they would start that process by going through all those jokes, cherry picking the ones that they liked and wanted to put into the episode. And then again, all in a shared Google Doc would sit and write the episode together. And then whenever we had a joke from the draft one that you think, oh, this would be really good, then you literally just copy and paste it and plonk it in. And sometimes that worked really well, but it really depended on how good the first draft was. Because if it was really good, then that process became so easy because you could just lift things in and you could get through an episode really quickly. But when the writers who were doing draft one weren't quite matching the tone of the show, then sometimes that meant the draft one wasn't particularly useful and then we kind of had to start from scratch so that was kind of a few flaws in the system along those sorts of lines i think the idea of writing that many jokes for it and doing that draft one draft two process is part of the reason gumball is successful because that focus on jokes was really beneficial for the show and it made me a much better joke writer um speaking personally i'm sure it did for everybody working on it like i think it was a bit of a lack of communication between those two teams and not necessarily having enough well, if, yeah, it's just communication, not really enough communication between the two of them to make sure that the draft one was as consistent as it needed to be. And then sometimes that meant draft two could take days and days because we would just get a bit stuck. There was, yeah, mixed, a system with mixed <laughs> results. But when it worked, it worked incredibly well. And what was it like the first time you came in and had to write one of those scripts and that, you know, your first kind of credit? Had you written much kind of TV pilot stuff before or was this your first time? No, not really. Well, I tried to write um, a few TV pilots again based on my sketch and character stuff. As I say, like, it got me meetings and it got me interest, but, like, nothing... I had nothing in development, anything like that. So working on Gumball was my first TV thing. And I started out in that draft one room. So basically it was myself, uh, a writer friend of mine, and our story editor. We'd sit there together in this little room and we'd write 10 pages of jokes between the three of us and be going over each other's, checking they're all good. So it was a really useful process in that regard, I think, for me personally. And... In terms of then getting to that point where, I guess, having a credit, it was, yeah, it was quite nice. But obviously animation takes so long that by the time you get your first credit on a mm-hmm. screen, it's like, oh, I've actually been doing this for a year and a half now. <laughs> um, but I think that the thing that was in a way more rewarding for me was that Ben and the writers on the Draft 2 team were sort of recognizing the work I was doing in the first draft. And so they brought me up. They kind of ended up switching me between the two. So I'd kind of go between all three different 
sections of that writing process. I'd sometimes be doing the second draft with him, and that meant you were basically shaping the final episode, which was nice. Sometimes I'd be doing draft one paired with the story editor and a, like a new writer, which was also nice because I do quite like just sitting and writing jokes. And it, I don't know, I felt a little bit more of a sense of responsibility to make sure that draft one was what we needed, which was stressful sometimes, but was also quite a nice thing. And then obviously structure is then coming up with the episode idea. So that's quite nice when you get to pitch an idea and you're like, oh, that's going to be an episode now because I just had this really stupid idea and Ben said yes and that's what we're going to do. On that topic, you've obviously then transitioned into a bunch of other animated shows, a lot of different mm -hmm. freelance credits. How did you get all those different writing opportunities? Is it sort of as easy as, hey, uh, this there's this opening online, I'll just apply or my <laughs> my writer friend just submitted me for it and that's that? Yes and no. <laughs> so, so after that, I got quite lucky and I was able to move on to another show quite quickly through somebody that had also worked on Gumball. It was somebody who'd subbed as a story editor as cover there and he was working a story editor on a new show for Disney XD called Space Chickens in Space, which I don't think aired here, but it aired in Australia and it aired in Europe. So I worked on that for about nine episodes, which was really good. The problem in the UK is that the animation industry is just probably, what, a tenth of what it is here. There are not a lot of shows being made even for the 6 to 11 bracket in the UK. A lot of the stuff for animation in the UK is just preschool, which I did a little bit of, and it's okay, I can do it, but it's not really where my strengths lie. That point I made earlier about half a 6 to 11, you don't need to write down to kids. You can just write good jokes and they will and ask them to come meet you up a higher level and they'll respond to you. Obviously it does not work with preschool. Like you do have to talk down <laughs> to preschool kids and write really childish stuff. And so it's not really my cup of tea. Beyond that Space Chickens and Space Show, a couple of other opportunities came up, but in general, there wasn't really the industry there. And I was feeling a little frustrated with it all. My agent at the time didn't really have a lot of contacts in animation and so wasn't kind of getting me the work I needed. So I hit a bit of a limit with it quite quickly. And so the way things changed for me is partly seeking a manager here to try and get me work, obviously, in Los Angeles. But then also a little bit of like reaching out to people. And obviously Gumball is, uh, I didn't realize this or appreciate it at all when I first started working on it, but Gumball is a huge show and it's catnip to animation people <laughs> they, if they hear that you worked on Gumball they're like pretty much like oh great let's let's at least have a conversation so I managed to get a job doing a couple of freelance scripts on Unikitty just by thankfully reaching out to the showrunners and saying hello Gumball please hire me <laughs> I mean it took it took months and I don't think that would have worked if I hadn't specifically worked on that show but um, it, it did work in, in that instance so there was a bit of a I guess a dry spell at the beginning of 2018 where I didn't have a lot of writing work at all and it took until getting a manager here and then coming out here for a week, thanks to that manager, to try and take meetings and promote myself and wave at execs and go, hello, I'm here, you can hire me if you like, that actually things then started to pick up a little more tangibly. And how did you actually get that manager? Was it just submitting stuff again online or through friends and referrals? Or were you flying out here and trying to meet places in uh, it person? Was, it was through a referral. Um, as a friend of mine, again, somebody that I knew through Twitter as like a story editor, here, who was just incredibly kind, basically. I, I reached out to him. We'd been, I think over the previous year or so, we'd been messaging quite a lot. And I sent him a DM and I said, hi, I need to get a manager. I don't know how to do that. How do you do that? And he just, I didn't ask him to refer me. He just did. He was like, oh, I'll put you in touch with mine. Mm -hmm. And so he was, he's represented by Gotham Group. And so he 
made a connection there and that's how that worked. And what was the process for you of uh, transitioning to the US? You spoke uh, about that uh, just now, but just in terms of your own uh, differences that you felt both professionally and personally, how different was it to move to LA? Oh, I'm still finding out the answer to that question, really. I only really came here at, well, I think in total I've been here about seven weeks. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm still I'm still figuring a lot of that stuff out, to be honest. I came here right at the beginning of November to start as head writer on this show And it's been very intense. And because the work is quite long, especially at the beginning, we're breaking the first season. In a way, that was kind of a blessing because it meant when I was at work, I was there, you know, 10 to 6, working with writers, working on the thing that at least I think I'm good at. <laughs> so uh, I felt kind of in my comfort zone and I felt like I knew what I was doing. But then I'd come out and the weekends would come and I'd go like, oh, my God, I don't have a place to live. I'm staying on a friend's sofa bed. I need to get a social security number and a bank account and all these different things that I just didn't have set up here. So to be honest, quite a lot of the last sort of what? excluding Christmas, the last seven weeks or so that I've been here, has been just trying to find my feet. There's a lot of different logistical things that I'm having to get used to, I think. The fact that there's just lots of little things that kind of add up. The over-reliance on cars to get anywhere. <laughs> If you come from London where public transport is wonderful, Londoners yeah. do not know how good they have it. But I think that's probably the biggest bugbear. I miss public transport with All my heart. <laughs> yeah, coming from uh, someone from Paris, I can also tell you that I also miss it. And when I when I went back to Paris over the the break, there was a big uh, transport strike, so there was no metro. This is kind of like LA again. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of the show that you're now head writing for, mm -hmm. how did that happen in the first place? How did you kind of get involved with Netflix and and this project? So when I did this week in late 2018 to go out and pitch, I'd worked out a couple of pitches for my own shows. And as I said before, basically, I went around Netflix and Disney and DreamWorks and all these places just to pitch these things. And obviously, if I'd sold a show, which I didn't do, that would have been really nice. But mainly, it was going around and going, hello, I'm a person you can hire. And I think the pitching generally went well, he says, not having actually sold a thing. But one of the execs I pitched to at Disney, I think, was quite interested in the pitch, this inevitable thing happened, which I think anybody who's been in the industry at all will, will recognize where you think you've sold somebody on a pitch and then they move companies and they're like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> But that person happened to move to Netflix. And so about six months later, they had me in mind for this show. They had bought this show from an animator who basically as an animator, but not a writer, he'd pitched and sold a show. And so they were looking for a head writer to come in and basically handle that side of it. And it's a, it's a, I can't say much about it, but it's a, it's a sci-fi thing. And because I've worked on, um, Space Chickens in Space and Bravest Warriors and got a couple of sci-fi things under my belt, they thought of me for it and sort of panned out from there. So I went, I came out in June to do a development week with the two showrunners and then wrote a pilot. Uh, this, this did freelance back in England. I came home, wrote a pilot, wrote the series Bible and, Then when it got greenlit, I came out here. Just on the creative and writing side, how did you approach adapting that pre-existing visual pitch to not just your own sensibility, but just generally creating like a compelling story based mm. on uh, an animation project? Well, looking at the, the source material that I had with this, it was quite interesting because the creator had a bunch of characters and he had the sort of general, I guess, world that he wanted, but didn't really have a story. And I think the most interesting thing about it was it felt like he was missing opportunities that he'd created. Like there, there were opportunities thematically that you could explore in his show that he was just not exploring. And there were characters that could have gone in a really interesting direction that were going in quite a straightforward 
direction and weren't doing anything particularly exciting and felt a little, I guess, by the numbers, like the characters we felt we'd seen before. And I wasn't particularly interested in doing that. So when I did that development week in June, part of that was me coming out to meet them and going, hi, this is my take. This is what I would do for this show. I would change what you've proposed the series arc would be to be this. And the reason I would do that is because it fits. So I've got no, I've got to talk in such vagaries for this because I'm not allowed (laughs) to talk about it, but I felt like on reading his material, I uncovered a thematic thing that he'd missed and gone, look, you've got this built into your show. I'm not coming in with something left field and going, I think your show should be about something different. I kind of went in and said, I think your show is about this. And if your show is about this, then here's what the story should be. And here's what the character should be. And here's how we can wed all those things together so it all feels a lot more coherent. And I think, yeah, so I think they went with that. So after that, we spent three days together and we were co-showrunner, the creator and I were hashing all these things out together. We'd write everything up on the board. We'd obviously go back and forth on a few things and negotiate. Then after that, it was just a case of coming back and pretty much writing up what we had discussed. The pilot was a little more nerve-wracking, obviously, because you sort of hope at that point the the way you write is going to match what they want. But I think partly because the creator is not a writer, it's one of those things where I think they read it and were like, great, this is the tone of the show, <laughs> which gives you, that's the advantage of writing the pilot, I guess, because you, you get the first pass. There's no contrasting script to compare it to. <laughs> there's no other thing I could, you know, there's nothing I could have written where they go, oh, that's not it. So I guess, uh, you know, you get to help define and sort of set the terms a little bit. You're creating the baseline. For exactly. The yeah. And so was it your responsibility to then sort of assemble that team of writers around you? And how did you go about doing that? What were you looking for? Yeah, that's right. So I had to assemble the writing team. That was obviously quite late in the day. I knew it had been greenlit. It was, I think, September-ish, maybe October, I started looking for writers. I didn't really know what to do as far as that was concerned. Like It's the first time I've been in that position. It's the first time I've been a head writer on a show. So I had to kind of think about... Yeah, for one thing, where to get writers from. And the main thing I did was reach out to people I know who'd been story editors before or execs that I knew and basically said, hey, is there a writer that you would recommend? And they would send me a list of people and I sat and read a lot of scripts and... That was really useful, actually. And it was, it was really, really interesting to read stuff because obviously everybody's hungry for work. So like, lots of people would very, very eagerly send scripts. But then the thing that was quite easy to, to discount a lot of the time was sometimes they'd write a script and you, and you read it and you go, this is a really good script, but it's not right for this show at all. And that's not there for. And I know it's one of those things where... I think as a writer, you sometimes hear that and you think, oh, that's an excuse. Like, it's just totally not right. But truthfully, like I remember reading this, this really lovely script that was a live action thing, like, like sort of drama comedy thing. Um, and I, I probably shouldn't actually say too much about somebody else's script, but it was uh, like, it was this beautiful thing. And I thought, well, this is really nice, but what I'm writing is a kind of like weird, stupid space cartoon. <laughs> um, and while this is really good writing, this is tonally not the right thing for what we're doing at all. So I had to find people who matched that. Two of the writers that we ended up hiring is their first staff writing gig, which is really nice. They'd done freelance things before, but this is their first, uh, yeah, their first opportunity to do this. So it was quite gratifying to be able to provide that for a couple of people. In terms of what I was looking for, I think mainly stuff, yeah, that would make me laugh, obviously was quite important, but then also things that had a bit, I know it's the easiest thing to say, like has heart as well, but um, you really want stuff that can kind of tug at the heartstrings as well. So anything that kind of had that little moment that caught you off guard, comedy that kind of either 
sucker punches you with like a little bit of sadness or a little bit of any kind of other feeling other than comedy is always the stuff that I've responded to really well. So that's the main thing I'd say I was looking for. And besides the tone and the writing style, were there any other things you were looking for in potential writers, especially in terms of a chemistry in the writer's room? Because that's often if you when you have a writer's room, that's mm. a, an important part of it. So I'm just Absolutely. wondering your process with that. Well, I don't think that unless you know the writers well ahead of time, I don't think that's possible to engineer. It's something that, you know, the execs were bringing up, like you want to make sure you have a good balance. And obviously I was reading people's scripts and then the people's scripts I liked, I, I interviewed those people. And, you know, you get a little bit of a sense of them, but at the end of the day, if you talk to somebody for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, when they're in interview mode, you're not going to get an accurate sense. You can get a, a bit of a feeling for them, but really not enough to be able to get a true measure of what they'll be like in the room. So to be honest with you, I tried a little bit when we got down to a short list of like, right, these are the writers that we're interested in. There was a little bit of an element of, well, this person and this person seem a little similar, so maybe we don't need both of them. But it, it was a fluke, to be honest with you. Like, actually, the, the dynamic we have with our three writers and our script coordinator, thankfully, is really good. <laughs> and uh, I think everybody brings something quite different to the table. But I'd be lying if I said I crafted that and engineered it in such a way that it works out that way. It was really luck. So when it comes to sort of like running the writer's room, how did you decide what sort of system you wanted in place? Were you taking things from the previous shows you'd worked on? Were you sort of bringing your own ideas to it? The main thing that I was quite keen to establish with my writer's room was to make sure that people were okay to pitch bad ideas and to pitch stupid ideas. I think partly because of my experience on Gumball. Like I, I got a lot out of working there. I think it made me a better joke writer. I'm fond of all the people that I worked with, but it was a very intense environment to work in. And as I said, sometimes if they felt like a writer, because everybody was freelance, if a writer wasn't working out, there would be sometimes quite a high turnover. They would let go of people quite readily. So there was a little bit of, I think, fear <laughs> coming out of how a lot of people approached working on that show. I think everybody, especially writers who hadn't been on the show for a long time, were worried that if they were not writing jokes that were good enough, they would not stick around, which I guess is fair enough in some respect. But then also, I believe that you should be allowed to fail. And I believe you should be allowed to make mistakes and pitch things that aren't necessarily right because sometimes a bad pitch can become a good pitch somebody can pick up on something and it can turn into something completely new so the main thing that I kind of took from that in particular was wanting to make sure that my writers were actively encouraged to just literally say whatever's in their heads and not censor themselves and make sure that whatever happens there, they're just saying things. This is also partly, I think, because of my sketch group. I was the only writer in my sketch group. The way it would work is I would write the shows, I would conceive them with the guys, and then we would we'd come back and we'd workshop things together. So they didn't write, which was fine. They didn't need to, but it did mean sometimes I would come in and I'd be trying to talk through ideas with them, and sometimes they'd be really responsive, but other times they would just be sitting there and not saying anything and just be really quiet and it was the most frustrating thing in the world just trying like just begging them to give me just give me anything just give me some sort of direction to go and it's like talking to a brick wall so that's the main thing that I was I guess I was looking to avoid and there's a few different like little sort of games and ideas that I introduced just to try and make sure that people are okay to do that and I think that's been working in its favor, especially because the newer writers, I think, I mean, I don't really know much about what it's like to be a staff writer here, but having spoken to the two new ones who kind of worked their way up from script coordinator, it seems like a little cutthroat and it seems people can get rid of writers very easily. And I understand, I suppose, why that's the case, but I'm not really interested in 
doing that. And I think especially given that two of them are very new and relatively inexperienced, I feel like they deserve the opportunity to, to like grow and learn and become better writers. And as long as basically the good they're doing outweighs the bad, which it does for all of them, uh, very much so. But like, uh, you know, if, if, it, if it was, I wouldn't be have, like carrying an albatross writer <laughs> on my shoulders just to try and prove a point. But everybody's doing good stuff. And so if there's something where like, I feel like, oh, this isn't quite right, or this isn't quite working, I want to give them the opportunity to develop and be okay with getting things wrong. Because I'm I, personally, I'm one of those people who does not grant myself that freedom. <laughs> like, I, I beat myself up all the time over things like this. Like I know I don't really allow myself the freedom to fail, but I do think it's very important. So I'm trying to... Uh, do better for other people. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, what were some of those uh, writer's room building exercises that oh, sure. you uh, um, brought? Well, my favorite one, the one that sort of works really well for me, we have a stupid idea box in our room, which we've been doing kind of at the beginning of the writing process, but also sort of at the beginning of the day as a bit of a warm-up thing. And the idea is everybody writes down literally just a stupid pitch for the show, and it can be anything. It doesn't have to be something that's going to be useful. It doesn't have to be something that is ever going to make it in. It's Everybody writes them anonymously. You just write it on, a, on an index card. You put it in the box. Um, I get people to write three or four of those, sometimes five at the start of the day, and then sometimes after lunch as well. And it's just to get people's brains working and get them okay with just saying whatever's in their head and not overthinking what they're going to say. So that was always quite a fun exercise. And then what ended up happening inevitably is we start drawing things out the box and we've made a bit of a game of it and trying to guess whose stupid idea each thing was, which has been uh, really silly. We've got a tally chart on the wall where we're sort of working out who's got the most successful guesses for stupid ideas. And then all the stupid ideas go up on the wall. So the entire one wall of our writer's room is just covered with useless ideas for the show <laughs> that, will, that will never make it in. But every so often, one of them does. Very rarely, admittedly, I think about three of maybe... 200 <laughs> so far have uh, because the thing is we've been doing this every day and we've got five or six people writing four ideas a day there's a lot of ideas in that box <laughs> and so three of them I think have made it through and it was just chance I think in those early couple of days when we were breaking the seasons I read a couple out and the creator of the show was like oh actually I quite like that and then we sort of went and ran with it. And we, we sort of would pair it up with another idea that we hadn't done anything with yet. And we found a way to include it. So in that way, by chance, it did end up becoming an episode of the show. But that's not really the purpose of it. I think that's a, I consider that to be a bonus. Really, the thing for me is just getting people to write down dumb stuff. I should introduce that to the one hour uh, writer's rooms I met. <laughs> that's serious. All right, let's do this stupid box. Thing. <laughs> so in terms of the writing process, like structurally, how did you go about breaking the show? Well, we were given by Netflix two seasons of 10 episodes each. So the story I came and pitched when I did that development a week was just for the first season. So dauntingly, we need to come up with something different for the second season. But the way we sort of went about it is we knew, I think when I did that development week, I pitched a new series arc for the show. So we had an overall story and it's kind of about this. Uh, it sounds awful to say for a kid's show because it makes it sound very boring, but the sort of philosophical conflict <laughs> between these between these two characters and their, their different ways of approaching sort of the world of the show and their different ways they view things. And that kind of became our story. And so we already went into breaking the season knowing that we had that arc in place and we knew what the main characters, well, I guess the protagonist and the antagonist in particular were doing. So after that, because we had 10 episodes, 
we wanted to try and create a little bit of a balance between having the serialized stuff and having episodes that could feel relatively standalone. It's harder to do when you're trying to cram it into 10 episodes, certainly, but I think I personally feel like if you're watching a great show and it's a serialized thing and episode eight is mind-blowing, you want to be able to show that to your friends. You don't want to be able to go to people and go, oh, episode eight is amazing. You've got to watch episode one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. Like Ideally, you want to be able to show someone just episode eight and they can watch it and still get it. So... We did a lot of just idea generation just for like standalone episodes and then tried to find ways to kind of weave the the season arc across those. So if we had an idea that just felt like it could be a relatively standalone thing, we would either let that be a standalone thing. I think obviously in the middle of the series is where we've got the most room for things that feel relatively isolated. And at the beginning of the end in particular, we knew there was just certain things we needed to establish and hit. So it became a case of marrying like a cool idea we'd had for an episode or something we really wanted to see with how we could fit it into the wider season arc of the show. So you brought up the importance of having a compelling episode that can stand on its own Mm -hmm. outside of the overall narrative. How do you balance that in terms of crafting an episode that is compelling in of itself and sort of services that half hour story, but also serves as one piece in a larger tapestry? Well, I think because my background's in sketch, I am very, I guess, concept-driven with how I think about ideas. I like the initial pitch for something to almost fundamentally stand alone as a joke, basically, and and be something where you hear the one-liner thing, just think, right, that is funny. And sometimes I think that that's worked to my detriment because I don't always necessarily start from character or theme sometimes, like which I definitely should. It would be better if I did. But quite often I will start from, oh, that's really funny. What can we get out of this? How can we maximize this? So usually... Well, I, I guess in terms of fitting it in with the series arc stuff, it's, it's just a bit of a jigsaw, really. It's figuring out where to put things. Because you know there are some episodes that you don't need to put as much serialization into. So you think, right, as long as we move the characters along this much, as long as we put that here, then we can put this character moment in a different episode. It's really hard to get that balance right. I think we did struggle a little bit given only 10 episodes. I think my preference personally would have been to do a 20-episode season with a cliffhanger in between them and sort of make this one story last longer and have a lot more room for just frivolous weird episodes. I love serialized stuff, but I think having that balance would have been better with with 20. That said, I think we've done it this time with 10 in a way that kind of works. And the way we've done it, I think, is just by making sure that each episode still has its own hook, even if it's quite a serialized thing. It still has a thing. It's not just the next chapter in the story. I don't think this this show is going to feel like watching a five-hour movie. I think it's going to feel like, right, each one is still an episode, but we are going to see what the, you know, going to get what the next thing is. So how do you approach your own sort of pitching process when you're going out, uh, hoping to sort of sell shows for development? Yeah. Well, I haven't done it very much, bear in mind. So I don't ever have too much useful to say on that subject. But when I went out and did it for a week, I think it's much more about hitting that thing that I just said I was bad at, which is uh, making sure you hit, I guess, theme and character. The thing you always get told a lot is making sure you're hitting why only you can make this show and why... It has to be, I hate it. I hate even saying it out loud. Why now? Like that, why Why it has to be made now? And I think, I always think why now in particular is stupid. Like I think if you're made, sometimes shows don't have a now. Sometimes ideally a good show is just be like, well, it can exist anytime. And that's what, ideally what's good about it. But that's, yeah, that's my hill I'll die on, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but the way I would sort of pitch it is, 
I think because I come from a writer-performer background, the way I tend to approach things is by writing it all out in advance. I write my pitch down and it'll be about, I think, a couple of pages of A4, maybe a bit longer. And I will I'll learn it like a script. And I think once I've learned it that way and I've gone over it enough times, then I can make it sound like relaxed enough and informal enough. But I don't want to be getting into the room and just like completely doing it off the cuff because you'll go, uh, blah, 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 and you'll stumble and you'll mutter and you won't say all the right things. So... And that's, yeah, I guess that's the approach I take. Learning it that way, I definitely think it's better to just be able to talk about the show solidly, not to be reading off anything or anything like that. If you want to have, especially for animation, I expect having visuals to accompany is really handy, but I've not pitched with them before and I've not sold anything. So, t- <laughs> so take, take that as you will. But yeah, I think learning that sort of 10 minutes or so that you can talk about the show and just being able to talk about it hit all the points you need to hit them concisely and hit them well what are your long-term career goals besides being the head of this animated <laughs> show uh, <laughs> well uh yeah well i would i'd like to pitch a show of my own and sell it that would be nice i think as everybody does i've got a you know stack of ideas that are just sort of sitting there that i need to drag together and kind of pull into a kind of coherent form and then try and sell those so that would be my preference but in medium term goals i guess the thing for me is this is my first job here And I've moved halfway across the world to come and do it. And what I really would not like to have happen is to upend my entire life, you know, move away from my family and friends and come here and do this one job and then eight months later go home. Like that would be, that would be annoying. So I think beyond that, if I'd like to sell a show of my own one day, I'd like to be working in adult animation as well as kids. I think just because a lot of my ideas, a bit like with my sketch group stuff, they skew adult whenever i'm trying to come up with an idea i'll have it and i think oh that's really oh it can't be for kids which is really annoying because it's much easier to sell kids stuff than adult stuff but i'd like to be working in adult and kids animation i think that would be ideal yeah i think just finding that balance between them either working on my own things ultimately or failing that continuing to work as a story editor on other shows would be delightful All right, before we go, we have a couple of final questions. Number one, what are you watching on TV right now? Well, as of right now, I mean, the good place finale just ahead. So mm-hmm. I've been watching that. I watched that. Everybody everybody I know has been texting me about it because they nailed the finale and it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. I rewatched Russian Doll recently. That was my favorite thing that's come out in forever. It just checks so many of my boxes as a show. And I guess like The Good Place does as well because it's kind of high concept and funny and has the opportunity to go a bit dark and weird and explore something that you wouldn't necessarily expect a comedy thing to. So it kind of like, stuff that elevates what you can do with comedy in that way and i've had arguments with people about whether russian doll is a comedy and i guess like it maybe maybe it isn't but i kind of feel it is like i don't think you can have a joke rate that high and play the jokes that they do in that show and not be a comedy um i i think when i get back today after this interview i'm going to watch the rest of bojack horseman because that's just come out I haven't read any spoilers. I don't know anything about what's going to happen, but that's a show that I've been obsessed with for a long time. So I'm quite keen to watch the rest of it. Do you have any final advice for TV writers out there? I think everybody who, who I'm sure you guys have found this as well, but anybody who has like works in TV at all will gradually start to get more and more people asking for advice about how to do it. And it's really hard because I'm sure, and I'm sure it's true for you guys as well. Everybody cuts their own 
path through it and then you, it, there's no way to follow that same path for somebody else i can't say to somebody right what you need to do is edinburgh fringe for six years you need to get these reviews <laughs> and then you need to get an agent my answer is a little bit tied into that because the only thing i think you can actually do is make your own stuff that's the thing that i did that got me a foothold and the people i know who've been successful or at least gotten into the industry i still feel relatively new in the industry altogether so i can't speak for progressing once you're in <laughs> and hopefully hopefully I will and then one day I'll have some advice but in terms of getting in I think it's about making your own stuff so we made these stage shows and if we weren't doing the stage shows we I wouldn't have got an agent which meant I wouldn't have gotten onto Gumball my sketch group had slots on uh, like BBC Radio 4 and we had a film director who came to see our shows and he ended up making lots of online sketches for us. So we put out, I think we put out 30 videos in the time like since we've known this guy and like lots of different sketches and short films and things like that. And those have then led to other work. And those have been things that I can show people or I can invite them to the live shows. There's a, a podcast sitcom that I made with a friend a couple of years ago that opened up other doors. All of these different things all directly contributed, I think, to getting me a foothold in the industry. So make your own stuff is, I think, the one universal truth. And last but not least, do you have any resources for our listeners, be it books, apps, websites, places, anything you can uh, think of? That'd be useful. The only thing that comes to mind is, I don't know if it's even easy to get here, but when I was having a bit of a creative block, maybe a couple of years ago, there's a book that got recommended to me by a couple of guys called the Brothers MacLeod, who I think are animation writers in England. Uh, and it's called Create Your Own Universe. And that book is one of those things where it just, it's just lots of little silly, like creative exercises. Uh, one of the early things they ask you to do in it is like draw a monster and like do this and then gradually add these particular details, add these little bits of information to it. And personally, A, I don't like drawing and B, I always find those sorts of exercises, if they're proposed to me, I roll my eyes a bit and I'm like, oh my God, what is this? But part of what's in that book is just going, look, just do it, just do it anyway. And you go like, oh, okay. And then you draw the monster or you answer the stupid question or you follow the stupid writing prompts you've been given and just working through that book was really useful and I think getting out of your own head and getting over yourself a little bit and going you know what I'm just going to do this stupid thing is incredibly useful for just making sure ideas start to flow again and again it's one of those things I wanted to take into the writer's room and I took a couple of exercises from that book and used them at the beginning of the writing process as well because it was really useful just to get people thinking creatively and not be too in their own head so that book specifically create your own universe, but also any book that kind of has those little stupid writing or drawing prompts in it, even if you, like me, can't draw and hate drawing, doing those things and not worrying about the quality of it. I think a lot of people who do what we do, you know, put a lot of pressure on ourselves and are really into this idea of making sure everything you produce is brilliant and representative of you and will get you hired and will do this and do that. So much weight and it becomes very, very hard to actually then write, certainly for me, I, I really something I really struggle with. So... That book or any book like it, I think, would uh, <laughs> do anyone who can identify with that a world of good. All right. So before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get exclusive content, opportunities, and merch, and we can keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in, and thanks so much to James for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And uh, <laughs> you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 174. 
As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. And where can our guests find you on uh, the interwebs? You can find me on Twitter at James Hamilton. I got in early, so I was able to get my actual name. <laughs> Your actual name, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was not, so there you go. Uh, if you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Uh, next week is our March Paper Scraps episode for 2020 as we uh, kind of tackle some of your TV writing questions, especially as the fellowships are coming up. On that note, we'll see you next week. See you then.